Um, so this morning, I want to uh, talk, we're going to be in John 1, and I want to talk about this idea of leveraging influence. And it's a big conversation around like leadership circles, how do you leverage influence. In business school, it was a big, big idea of like uh, my finance classes, like how do you leverage the maximum return for the minimum amount of money that you put in. Leveraging influence is the same thing, just different concept. And there's all kinds of thoughts around how do you like leverage the influence, whether big or small, for something to achieve maximum impact. And uh, the first time I can remember I really leveraged my influence uh, was when we lived in Las Vegas, I stumbled upon this wonderful, wonderful donut shop. It was called Donut Hut, and it was like a hole in the wall. It uh, was only open from like 8 p.m. to 7 a.m., so you like had to really want donuts. And that's the owner. He, I forget his name, but he went by the Cambodian Rambo. And he... <laughs> That's like actually what he looked like at night, too. He'd come out with like his helmet sometimes and his sunglasses on. And it was cash only, like CD, CD, but the best and cheapest donuts you've ever had. Incredible salesman, incredible soldier, but incredible salesman. You'd go to him and you'd be like, I'm going to get a donut and a milk and it's going to be less than $2. And you'd be like, hey, can I have a blueberry uh, donut? And without breaking eye contact, he would say, and? And you're like, Okay, well, your inner monologue's like, I guess I could probably have two, and that would be fine. I'll take half of it home. So, uh, And then a cinnamon crumb. And? And you're like, okay, well, now I'm taking half a donut home. I could take a half and another full donut home, so I'll do an old-fashioned. And he just kept anding you until all of a sudden you walk out and you spent like $10.60, and you have no idea what happened. <laughs> and so what I would do is we had an internship at our church, and I would get a bunch of, like, hungry 18-year-olds to go there over the summer, and then I'd go to the front of the line. I'd be like, hey, look, I brought all of my friends. And all of a sudden, a cinnamon crumb, a blueberry, and an old-fashioned would end up on my plate. No cash needed for me. I leveraged my influence for the sake of free donuts, which is a really good thing. Um, Jesus, here's why. Jesus leveraged his influence. <laughs> Different uh, end game, but he leveraged his influence. So John 1, we're going to go there. We're going to be in John 1, basically about 11 verses uh, at the beginning of John's gospel. It says, the next day John, this is John the Baptist, not John the guy that is writing this. The next day John the Baptist was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. And when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. And when we hear this term, Lamb of God, like that's a little awkward for us. That's not something we say to people anymore. But this would have been steeped in like Jewish um, and messianic waiting. Because if you say Lamb of God to us, we think animal. You say Lamb of God to a first century Jew, they're like, oh yeah, like, like Exodus 12, like the Passover Lamb. Or like the, the twice daily sacrifice, Exodus 29. I know what the Lamb of God is. What do you mean, the Lamb? Because like we sacrifice lots of lambs. But you're telling me that's, that's the lamb. And John the Baptist, who has influence with these guys, these guys are following him around. He says, look, there's the lamb of God. And the two disciples follow Jesus. John leveraged his influence for the sake of Jesus. I leveraged my influence for donuts. John the Baptist leveraged his influence for the sake of the kingdom. And what's crazy, and the idea this morning is we all have influence. We all have influence. Some of us larger, some of us smaller. Maybe you're an influencer. I think I have like 410 Instagram followers, so like I'm a long way from that. But all of us have influence. None of us have no influence. And so how do we, as um, potentially if you're a follower of Jesus, how do you as a follower of Jesus leverage your influence 
for the sake of the gospel? How do you leverage your influence for Jesus? And turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And I read a bunch of commentaries on this because it just seems like that's an awkward question. A couple commentators were very kind to these two disciples, but most of them said, like, look, this was just an awkward question. Jesus, the Lamb of God, turns around and says, like, what can I do for you? What are you doing? What do you want? And these guys clam up. They don't ask about the sin of the world, what was creation like, um, what's it going to be like when all things come together. They're just like, oh, where are you staying? And uh, I love the Bible because it's really honest. You've done the same thing. You've, like, made an awkward comment or an awkward question when conversation is, like, tense or um, steeped in, like, some kind of awkwardness. Seriously, like, literally last night, I was at a birthday party for a guy. Uh, He used to lead the gym that I went to, and I didn't know a whole lot of people there, and I was talking to his roommate. Uh, We'll call him Keith, because that's his name, and he's not here. And I'm talking to Keith, and we're we're making the smallest of small talk. And it's about time for the conversation to be over. He told me he's moving to Dillonvale. I didn't know where that was. I asked where it was. And um, at the very end, it's that awkward, and you know what this is. It's that awkward silence before one of us just needs to buck up and say, like, well, it was good talking to you. And at the very end of the conversation, I'm like, so do you like Dillonvale? <laughs> and even as the words are coming out, I'm like, I don't care. No, 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 no. I want to take them back. I don't care about Dillonvale. And as the words are coming out of my mouth, there's like this look of like, why did you ask? You don't care, and I certainly don't want to tell you. And so Keith and I are locked in another seven minutes of him telling me about Dylan Vale simply because of the pleasantries of conversation. Every one of us have done what these two disciples do where Jesus, Savior of the world, turns around and says, what can I do for you? And they just want to know where he's staying. And Jesus, so gracious, so kind, as he is, says, come and you will see. And so they went and they saw where he was staying. And that day, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Um, here's the big idea today that I want to talk about. I've been having this phrase kind of roll around in my mind, but Jesus created a culture of invitation. Jesus created a culture of invitation. He said, come and see. And the alternative to a culture of invitation is a culture of explanation. So Jesus could have said, well, I'm staying just west of Jerusalem, just go by the cobbler's house, turn left, I'm on the second floor. That's a culture of explanation where we've got to get all of the answers out at that time. But Jesus cultivated around him a culture of invitation. Where he could have said all of those things, but what he really said is, look, you should just come and see. You should come and see. Because Jesus knew this about himself. Jesus knew that invitation would trump um, anything else. And Jesus knew that experience would trump any kind of explanation that he could give them. If they could just experience me, that's going to give them way more than if I actually explain what's going on. Experience trumps explanation. Invitation is so much better than explanation. Jesus says, come and see. And I would love, and I think that we have this at this brand new little church, I would love to have a culture of invitation around us where we are doing what John the Baptist did, where we are doing what Jesus did and saying, look, come and see. Might not have all the answers, but come and see because we believe that invitation is way better than explanation. 
If you can actually experience Jesus rather than just some like words that I say, that's going to be better. If they can experience the presence of God, that would be better than anything that we could say to them. So it says, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. And so culture, you've heard this phrase, culture is caught, not taught. So immediately, Andrew sees what Jesus does and he's like, I'm going to do the same. And he brings along someone else. And Andrew is the first person to do what we call relational evangelism. It's crazy. D.A. Carson is a New Testament scholar, way smarter than me. He says this. He says, he, Andrew, thus became the first in a long line of successors who have discovered that the most common and effective Christian testimony is the private witness of friend to friend. Andrew does very little explanation. He says, look, I think we've found the Messiah. Uh, Messiah just means like to anoint or anointed one. And it was, again, one of those words that was so filled with, like, expectation. Because the anointed one used to be referred to as the high priest of the time or the king of the time. That was the anointed king, or that was an anointed high priest. And over the end of the, uh, the course of the Old Testament being written, that term went away, and it was more used to describe the coming priest or the coming king, the anointed one. And Andrew says, look, there's the Messiah. I want you to come. I want you to experience what I've experienced. A culture of invitation is incredibly simple. It's so simple. I mean, just to invite people into your church, your group, your life, like inviting a culture of invitation is so simple, yet it does take a little bit of awkwardness. It takes that moment where you have to be a little bit vulnerable and go out on a limb And Andrew goes out on a limb, and he could have looked stupid, because what if Jesus wasn't the Messiah? But he said, look, I think I found the Messiah, the one we've been waiting on. And he brings his brother to Jesus. It says the first thing Andrew did was brought his brother Simon, or Simon Peter, to Jesus. And this is is like Peter, like the Peter, like walk on water Peter, the Peter that was the first one to exclaim that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, publicly. The Peter that denied Jesus three times but then was so beautifully restored. Like the same Peter that did all of those things is the Peter that was invited. The Peter who, when he was being crucified for his faith, said, I can't be crucified in the same way that my Savior was crucified. So he was actually hung on a cross upside down, as legend says. The Peter who you've probably heard or read or memorized some of his words. You've seen them in Hobby Lobby for sure. Cast all of your anxiety on him because he cares for you. That Peter... If you grew up Catholic, it's the Peter like, that is regarded as the first pope. If you have grew up Protestant, it's one of the rocks of our early church. That same Peter is the one that's invited. And here's what's crazy. If there was no Andrew, there'd be no Peter. If there was no Andrew, there would be no Peter. All of the things that we just said about Peter, those might not have happened if there was no Andrew. If there was no culture of invitation where Andrew says, look, you should come and See, our most impactful contribution might not be what we do, but it might be whom we invite. Our most impactful contribution might not be what we do, but it might be whom we invite. Jesus 
around him developed a culture of invitation. It says, the next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one that Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth. Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, Philip replied. Uh, a little bit of context. Nazareth, along with where um, Nathanael was from, which is Cana, is all in this area called Galilee. Uh, it's part of Israel, part of Judah at the time. And it was in the north, and in the south was like Jerusalem and like the main part of Judah. And Judah, the more educated urban, um, kind of looked down on Galilee. And thus, human nature would have it. Galilee decided we need someone to look down on, and so they drew straws or decided, you know, it's Nazareth. There's nothing physically or spiritually important about Nazareth. We're going to look down on Nazareth. And so uh, Nathaniel, who's from Cana, would have said, like, Nazareth, there's no spiritual significance. There's nothing that could have actually come. There's no testimony. There's no prophecy about Nazareth. And Philip, he doesn't try to explain it away or say, well, I think he's actually from Bethlehem, but he's born there. But he's, he just says, look, I, I don't know. You should come and see. Philip has this invitation where he says, I could, I could try to explain it to you, but I'm not quite sure myself. Actually, I just started following him today. Philip doesn't explain any of that to Nathaniel. He just invites him to come and experience it for himself. The presence of God, I believe, is still our greatest apologetic. The presence of God is our greatest apologetic. And I still remember a, a part of the church growing up where apologetics were a big deal, and it was all about, like, we've got to figure out, um, and this isn't wrong, this is really good to study, but we've got to figure is the resurrection, like, how do we prove the resurrection, the historicity of the Bible, how old's the earth? And, like, apologetics are really good, but the best apologetic is when someone comes into a room and experiences the presence of God. When you pray for someone and they experience the conviction of Jesus, when they experience the love of a father, especially if they did not have the love of their earthly father, the presence of God is absolutely far and away our greatest apologetic still. And Philip doesn't have all of the explanation. He just mimics what he saw his Savior do, and he says, I don't know, you should come and see. And what's so crazy is Philip had been following Jesus for about a day, and he was already qualified to invite someone else. So there is no, like, discipleship school or five years, or once you've been following Jesus for, you know, a, a year, a solid year, then you can start uh, making contributions and inviting. No, Philip was like a day old in his faith, and we don't even quite know if he was sure about this whole Messiah thing, but he knew there was something there, and it was worth inviting someone else to come and to see. Uh, about a year ago, I was at the BMV. True story. And uh, half of you are already asleep. It was awful, as expected. But um, I saw a guy, he was just ha I, he was having a hard time figuring out um, how much he owed, and he didn't think, I could tell he didn't quite have enough money. And so um, I felt like the Lord said something to me to say to him, which is so cool. God's like awesome. And um, that he like still speaks to his kids. And so I go through and do my whole thing, and he's, on the, he's outside, and I start talking to him, and I uh, prayed for him, and I said what I felt like the Lord wanted me to say to him, and it was really good. Like, 
he was like visibly struck by like, I didn't know, you know, why are you helping me figure this out? And I didn't have quite enough money. And it was such a good like 45 minute conversation. And later on in that uh, conversation, I was like, hey, look, I don't know what you believe, where you live. Uh, I'm a part of like a new church that just got started here. And actually, we're having a worship night this week and you should come. So the band's great. Pastor's decent. I think you'll like it. And uh, thank you. Thank you. I'll be here all week. And I said, you should come. And uh, we, it was at the Shakespeare Theater, so maybe you remember. It was either our first or second uh, worship night, if you were around then. And if you were there, you might remember that there was, like, audible weeping during pretty much that whole worship night of a man. And he was behind the sound panel. And when I, look, I went to, like, see who it was, it was, it was this guy. It was Aaron, who I met at the BMV. And I didn't know if, like, medically, I mean, this was, like, grown man, like, heaving and, like, almost convulsing on the ground. And I put my hand on him. I'm like, hey, are you okay? And he said, I have not experienced the presence of God like this in such a long time. And he just starts, like, repenting. I mean, he starts saying things that, like, I didn't know him well enough to hear. And he starts repenting, and he starts praising the Lord because he's like, I didn't know you still cared. And I could have explained that the presence of God is real. I could have told him that outside the BMV. I could have explained a bunch of things to him. But he just needed to experience the greatest shift in his faith that I think he's ever had. And it was the presence of God. It wasn't a prayer that I prayed. It, was a, it wasn't a song that they sang. It was simply the presence of God. And it started by a simple invitation. And Aaron's life is still radically changing because of one night where he met the presence of Jesus. And so Nathaniel, if you read on, uh, Nathaniel's life was radically changed, like radically changed. And if you read what happened, it wasn't Philip's rhetoric. It wasn't his argumentative uh, strategy. It wasn't anything that Philip said. It was an encounter with Jesus. It was purely an encounter with Jesus that absolutely changed Nathaniel's life. And that, that is the only thing that can change people. And so in some ways, a culture of invitation means that we have to take a risk and some of it's on us and we have to do some awkward things. But really... A culture of invitation is very freeing because it is only the presence of Jesus that can do anything that can move someone from this to that, from death to life. And so practically, I want to get practical for the end. I want to talk about how do we create a culture of invitation? How do we create at least a healthy culture of invitation? Uh, first of all, and this is going to sound counterintuitive to all of the things I've been saying, but we have to love people more than we love our agenda. People can smell an agenda from a mile away. You can smell an agenda from a mile away. You've been in that conversation where someone asks you, uh, hey, you know, how's work going? And you're like, oh, it's good, but my boss, oh my gosh, let me tell you about my boss. This week, she, and you're like, you didn't care about my job, did you? You just want, you wanted to talk about your job, did you? Okay, yeah, you go ahead. You can smell an agenda from a mile away. You have someone show up at your door, call from an unregistered number, and they're like, do you like beach vacations? And you're like, I do, but I think you just want to sell me a vacuum. Like, there's no way you actually care about my taste in vacations. Everyone has experienced an agenda. And you can smell, anyone can smell an agenda in a conversation from a mile away. And so we have to love people more than we love our agenda of inviting. And that means, actually, sometimes an invitation isn't the best thing. 
This is where uh, being sensitive to the moment is best. Do I pray? Do I listen? Do I talk? Do I explain? Do I give advice? And usually that's not our biggest miss. Usually my biggest miss, at least, is not inviting. But sometimes it actually is right to just say, okay, what's, what's right in this moment? And so we have to love people more than we love our agenda. On the flip side of that is we have to say, okay, do we love them enough to give them something good? Do we love them enough to invite them to something that would be good for them? Which begs the question, is church, is Jesus, is house group, is inviting them into my life, is that actually good for them? And uh, honestly, I usually, um, and this is my own insecurity that I'm trying to deal with, but like I shy away from teaching uh, on giving and on uh, being at church because I know, I know so many, um, so some churches and some pastors have manipulated that in the past, and there is church hurt around those two things. And, uh, and I shy away because I don't want to hurt people. And unfortunately, I'm really convicted like being in a church is good. Like being in a community is good. I'm really convinced biblically and experientially that like giving away a portion of my income regularly and generously is good. And so I'm working on my insecurity to actually say what I think is good for people. Being in church is good. Being consistent. And look, I know not every message is going to change your life. I know, shocker, you thought that I assumed that. Not every worship set is going to bring down the presence of God. But being consistent in a place like this, being consistent in a smaller community like a house group, being consistent in inviting people into your life actually is a really good thing. And so I want to love people enough to not push my agenda on them, but I also want to love people enough to do something that's uncomfortable for me and do something that's really good for them. And I don't want to value my comfort over what is really good and loving for people. And a culture of invitation is so simple, but it also begs that we do something at times that is a little bit risky, a little bit uncomfortable. Um, I thought about these three things. I want to kind of extrapolate on Acts 2 of where do we invite people. And this changes based on the time that we're in or the culture that we live in. But 21st century America, I think there are three areas that we can invite people. And I've already said a couple of them. I really do think this, the Sunday gathering, is still a really good thing. I think we can invite people to church. In Iran, that doesn't work. Let's take advantage of the fact that we can still like gather in public And this is still part of our culture. People still know when you say, do you want to come to church? They have some image that comes to mind. I think it's really good that we can invite people to our church. Also, I think it's really good that we invite people to our groups. We have these things called house groups. We have modeled ourselves, and this is uh, important, I think, if you're new. We've modeled ourselves more off of like a house church movement than we have any small group um, plan of other churches. And so we say we're a church with two front doors. And so our first front door is Sunday morning, but equal to that, not lesser than, not just if you want to go get serious, equal to a front door on Sunday is our front door of house groups. This is, I mean, this might actually be the best place to invite people because um, the way we try to set these up are we're eating together and we're praying together. And if you're not in a house group, if you're new or newer here, if you, especially if you've been here for a while, you need to get in a house group. Um, there are functions that the church is called to do that we've just chosen. We can only do some of those on a Sunday morning. 
Honestly, like there are some functions that are just better that are in a living room. There's some functions that are better on a Sunday. Good luck getting this band in your living room. It's not going to happen. But there are some things that are just better or more functioning in a living room, sitting around dinner or around table, around food and drink. Like actually getting to like share and pray for each other and bear one another's burdens and fellowship and the breaking of bread. So many things. So if you're not in a house group, they start back this week. It's a shameless plug. You like how I'm doing this? Shameless plug. House groups start back this week. This would be the best time to join. We've been on break for about a month. We want to get into a community. As this church is growing, actually our goal is how do we make it smaller? You need to be asking, how do I make this church smaller? I can't connect uh, really effectively with 130 people, but I can connect with 12. I can connect with the nine that are in my living room. So you can find that uh, on our website. See Caitlin or Mandy at the Connect table. There are so many ways to get plugged in. I would say that is one of the best places that I can invite you to, and also you can invite other people to. The third one is we can invite people into our lives. We invite people into our lives. 1 Thessalonians 2.8 says, and this is Paul talking, he says, because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. I love this verse. I love this verse. Paul says, look, I didn't just share news with you. I actually invited you into my life. And I love this verse, not because I'm really good at it, but actually because it's really convicting. I am very bad at this. I am like calendar guy through and through. So organized, disciplined. Okay, I'm going to do this from this time. Uh, a couple years ago, my mom, my own mother, she complained that she said, you know, sometimes I feel like I have to get on your calendar to call you. And mom, that's not true. That is so not true. You can call me seriously anytime. Anytime. Except right now because I'm working. <laughs> but like after this, you could, t well, I'll be at the block party. So like after the block party. But if you want to call me tonight, that would be, that'd be fine. I get home from dinner at like 8. Um, but seriously, any other time, mom, please call me. And, and so this is hard for me. Like, this is how I live my life. And so how do I invite people, not just into the news that I get to share, but into my life as well? And if you're type A, you probably are like nodding your head because this is hard. How do we not invite 100 people, but how do you invite two or three people into your life and share that with them? And Paul did it. And when you read in Acts 17, he still went to Thessalonica and preached in the synagogue, his normal thing that he does. But he also, in 1 Thessalonians 2, said, look, I invited you into my life as well. And when you read through Thessalonians, he said, man, I thought for sure. I was only there. It seems like he was there a few weeks from what we can see, maybe a couple months. He said, I thought for sure you would have fallen away. But in 1 Thessalonians 3, he says, I'm praising the Lord that you are still faithful in this. Because apparently Paul had a model that was more effective than he thought. Paul wasn't just doing this. He was inviting people into his life. And although he was only in Thessalonica for a short time, he said, I can't believe you guys are still following Jesus because he invited them into his lives as well. He had the best news of all time, but he said, look, come and live it with me. I'm not just going to tell it to you. So to end, how do we know which one to invite people into? Our church, our group, our life. Super simple. Write this down. Um, you have to ask the Lord. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. We really believe like God still speaks, and uh, we really value hearing God's voice here, and there is no equation to following Jesus. I would have found it, I promise. <laughs> there is no equation to following Jesus. We have to be sensitive to his voice. So sometimes it's, hey, invite him to your group and to dinner tonight. Sometimes it's nothing. Just listen. 
but we're asking the Lord, Lord, how do I best love this person and allow me to be bold in doing that? Because the ideal church, the church that we all base our like descriptions and our dreams off of, Acts 2, 42 to 47, the very last verse, it says in 47, and the Lord added to their number daily those that were being saved. The Bible records all kinds of numbers. The Bible dedicates a whole book to numbers. And so on one hand, numbers aren't important. On the other hand, numbers are really important because every number is like a person. And so we want to do what a healthy church does. We want to invite. And the church of Acts was inviting because healthy things grow. And what we feel like we're called to do specifically, we're probably not going to be like a zero to one church. Or like, let's get as large as we can. We really want to value depth. But it seems like the church in Acts was valuing depth while also really, really honoring that they could invite more and more people into the healthy experience of Jesus that they had. Jesus cultivated around him a culture of invitation. I want to cultivate around us a culture of invitation. And this is important to me because that's my story. My story is all through high school and at the beginning of college, I was pulled in two different directions. Theologically, I believed in Jesus. Experientially, I really thought that what the world had going on was probably better. And it came my first, um, first week in college, I was invited. I was invited to a large gathering, a crew gathering, a big event. I was invited there, and when I was there, I was invited to a group by a guy named Rob. Rob invited me to his group, and he invited me over and over again to his group. And when I got to that group, it was guys like Clayton and Wes and Tyler and Ryan and Mitch and Zach that made me feel really, really welcomed. And Rob kept inviting me to the gathering, and then he kept inviting me to his group, and I kept coming, and then he started to invite me into his life. And I got to go to his apartment and hang out with him, a junior. I got to um, experience some of the things he was dealing with with a different major. I got to go to his new girlfriend's church up in Indianapolis, where I like radically encountered the Holy Spirit. Rob kept inviting me into his life and into his group and into his gathering, and eventually, two years in, I broke. I broke. I went all in for Jesus. And you know what broke me? You know who broke me? It was Jesus. It was absolutely Jesus. But do you know how I got into a situation to be broken before him over and over again? It was because Rob invited me. And if there was no Andrew, there would be no Peter. And if there was no Rob, there would be no Chris. Rob's actually in our church now, which is really cool. If there was no Andrew, though, there would be no Peter. We wouldn't have all the stories that we have about Peter. And if there was no Rob, there would be no Chris. A culture of invitation, this is what I want to close with. A culture of invitation is all of our jobs. It's all of our jobs. A welcoming environment in the church is all of our jobs. And people love a good message, and it is my job to make sure we have biblical but relevant messages. And people love good worship, and that's on Jalen and the band. But there is no replacement for an authentically welcoming community. And so a culture of invitation doesn't just start in this room, but it starts out there with all of us. Because a culture of invitation means that we are both the inviters and the welcomers. Your neighbor coming is my responsibility. Your friend coming to church is my responsibility. It's your responsibility to care about your friend that you brought. 
because there is no replacement for an authentically welcoming community. Jesus cultivated a culture of invitation, and so we want to do the same as well. Let's worship as we invite Jesus into this room, and then we get to go out and actually invite people into our lives and our church and our groups as well.